Welcome to FNT Bible Talk, where we're going through the Bible and showcasing God's glory through His unified story. I'm your host, Felix Birch. On this episode, we'll be talking about Genesis 48 through Exodus 12, the end of Genesis, the story of Moses, and the Exodus. Hey guys, welcome to week five of FNT Bible Talk. So last week we talked about the story of Joseph and we ended by talking about how Joseph and his brothers reconcile. So this week we're going to begin with Jacob and his sons and basically he's just going through every single blessing over his sons. So we learn about Jacob's final days and then we see that Jacob blesses and adopts Joseph's sons Manasseh and Ephraim as his own children. Because of this kind of adoption, we actually see that there are kind of like 13 sons of Israel instead of 12. So Joseph's line is essentially divided in between his son Manasseh and Ephraim. And it's cool because we actually see Ephraim in some of the other books of the Bible used as the name of Israel. So it's very cool to see that these sons were actually adopted as Jacob's own. So then we see Jacob bless Joseph, and when he does, I just wanted to point out this scripture really quick before we move on, but he states in verse 15, the God who has fed me all my life long to this day, or basically what he's saying here that is God has been my shepherd, and then he goes on to say that may this God bless these boys. So one of the key things about these last few chapters that Jacob blesses his children is that Jacob never proclaimed any great merits of his own. Yet he declared that his life and his blessing were a testimony to the grace of God. And he wanted to pass that on to his kids. Amen. That's awesome. And so the story picks up chapter 50 of Genesis where Jacob dies and he passes away and immediately Joseph's brothers come to him and they're afraid. They're afraid that because uh, Jacob's been alive and dad's been alive all this time that Joseph hasn't been angry with us and that he'll spare us. But once dad dies, maybe Joseph is going to, that anger will be rekindled and he'll kill us and he'll do away with us. And so they go to Joseph and they ask him, they say, will you please, they they say, dad told us that his last request was for you to be merciful to us or you to spare us. Mm -hmm. And so this is his reply to them in Genesis 50, 19 through 21. And it says, but Joseph said to them, do not fear for I am in the place of God. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Mm. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. And thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. And this was one of the questions we had for this week's reading. Was at the end of Genesis, we asked you to think about just the purposes of Joseph's life and the trials and how it would change our perspective and our view. The story of Joseph teaches us that in every situation, our lives, God is always working behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. There is always a bigger picture at play, and though we might only see a little bit, God sees it all. Every bit of our trials and testings before God, none of it is meaningless, and always 100% of is meaningful. And I was just thinking about this as far as this question goes. It really does allow us to understand, just from watching Joseph's lives, is that no matter what comes our way, God is doing something great at work. Mm-hmm. And that whatever he's working out, it is for his glory and it's for redemption's sake. And that he's going to bring about redemption in someone's life through whatever is walking through our lives. And so when we answer that question, we just have to understand that the, the life of Joseph teaches us that God is always sovereignly at work in our lives and that nothing is meaningless, but it all has meaning. One of the things I also wanted to bring about from Joseph's story is just the comparison between Joseph and Jesus at the end of his life. In this statement, when he tells his brothers, he makes some great statements that is such a picture of even Jesus. You know, when Joseph was sold into slavery, we know clearly that it was meant for evil. It wasn't meant from his good, from his brothers, right? Their their intent was to do evil to him and to sell him in such a way that ultimately it would destroy him. 
And just like Jesus, the cross was meant for evil. The people that crucified him, their intention through the cross was evil. It was not good. But God, just like he did with Joseph, God used Joseph's slavery for the saving of his family and for the seed of the woman to be preserved. What was meant for evil, God used for good. And just like the cross, what was meant for evil, God used for good. God used the cross for the salvation and the forgiveness of sins. And the cross on which Jesus died was used to bring people to, to know God and to be reconciled. One of the things also is that when you see Joseph's response to this is that Joseph could have been angry with him. He could have destroyed them. But he responds to them with a phrase that says, I'm going to deal kindly with you. And he comforted them. And he says that I'm even going to take care of you. I'm going to provide for you. And then just like Jesus, instead of bringing death to us deserving sinners, he brought life and reconciliation, making us sons and daughters of God and providing for us everything that we would never lack. And so like Joseph of life is such a picture of Jesus, where a man who were evil was done to, all of it was used for salvation, it was used to save people, it was used to keep people, it was used to protect people, to love people, and Jesus is the same thing in the image that we see on the cross. And so just thinking about Joseph's life, it is such a testimony, a picture of Jesus and the way he lived his life, and just, just a glimpse for us in the New Testament. So the story moves on and from Genesis that we jump into Exodus. And in Exodus, we're going to see a few things here. I just want to bring about it. Is that when we start, about, we start Exodus, we have to understand that Genesis and Exodus were not written at two separate times. They were written together along with the rest of the Torah. And so really the Torah is one big book in the Jewish uh, Bible. And so Exodus is really just the continuation of Genesis. It's not a whole separate thought. It's the continuation of it. And so what Exodus proves to us is it proves to us God's continuing story and his faithfulness to his promises. It also shows us how God acts in redemption as we will see that unfold more and more through the book of Exodus. And then it exposes us to God's mission and how he uses us in this earth and uses his people as a nation in this earth. So Exodus 1, we'll just jump right in. We'll just talk a little bit about what's going on here. So it's been 400 years. And if you're familiar with the passage in Genesis 15, God had told Abraham that this would come to pass, that you would, your people would be in slavery for 400 years. And so 400 years have gone by. And there's some big things I want to bring out in this that I always think is just meaningful, is that Israel has grown very large as a nation and Egypt has overruled them. But it says that Joseph has been forgotten. And so he's no longer around in, in this sense. And so the Israelites have become slaves. And when they come become slaves, I want you to think about when a slave is, is in possession of someone, that slave does not have an identity of their own. Right? The slave does, does not own themselves. The slave does not possess themselves. But simply their identity is that of their masters. And here is Israel, who were the chosen people of God, who knew that 400 years there'd be deliverance, but they find themselves no longer even wondering, what is our identity? But Are we Egyptians? Are we not Egyptians? What's going on with us? All that they would know. They would be more, the most likely they would have been more familiar with the Egyptian gods than Yahweh himself, just because of the fact that they 400 years. When you think about America's history, America's a little more than 200 years. Think of all the change that has happened in America over 200 years. Imagine the change that would have happened to the people of Israel in over 400 years. Their misconceptions of life, their misunderstandings of who God was, their influence from the, the Egyptian culture and everything. And so Exodus really is God introducing himself to the people of Israel as a nation and explaining them, this is who I am. And this is what makes this book so incredibly great because it's like God showing these people, I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. I am great. I am mighty. I am powerful. And I love you. And I'm here to redeem you and save you. Mm -hmm. And so 
several things that we see about Israel with this is that they were since they were in slavery and they weren't just in slavery to anybody they were in slavery to the greatest nation in the world at the time the most mm-hmm. powerful empire and so I want you to think about this if they were enslaved to the greatest empire where could deliverance come from it's not from themselves it could not be from themselves they couldn't rise up they weren't powerful enough they didn't have the military might the military technology to overcome these people so we can cross that out and say there's no hope for themselves right within themselves um, time wasn't the answer I mean it's been 400 years and they're still not free so another 100 years isn't going to do anything most likely within another 100 or 400 years they probably would have just died off so time wasn't the answer and then it couldn't have been another nation because there was no nation greater than Egypt in the world and so it wasn't that they could place their hope in another nation or in somebody else and so that's crossed off too so it leaves us with one answer to this problem of bondage and slavery and it's God himself. And so he comes on the scene and he begins to raise up someone. And Becca's going to talk about Moses, the man he raises up. So, yeah, so we see in the beginning of Exodus that the Israelites are in captivity and they're in this position because the Egyptians and Pharaoh are scared. They're populating very quickly. They're growing in number. And so the Egyptians are getting scared that they may be overtaken by the Israelites. And so he puts them in slavery. And in addition to that, he commands all of the Hebrew midwives to kill any male children to prevent the Israelites population from growing. But the midwives fear God, which is a wonderful thing, and God honors them. But then Pharaoh comes back in Exodus 1.22 and then commands all of his people, every boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. And so here we see this command of Pharaoh and we zoom into a specific story of a baby named Moses. So we see that a Levite woman and a Levite man have a baby and they hide him for three months, as the scripture tells us. And I love this. Not only do they hide them, but the Bible says that they hide them in faith. Mm, So they hid Moses in faith. They believed Yahweh at his word and were honoring God and everything that he had given them. They were honoring human life. So when they couldn't hide him anymore, they placed him in a basket and they put him in the Nile River. Well, as we see, Pharaoh's daughter finds him, feels sorry for him, or has compassion on him, takes him in, and raises him. But before she actually raises him, the beautiful thing about this is that God honors the faith of Moses' mother. Moses' sister comes in and says, I'm going to go find a Hebrew woman to nurse him for you. And Pharaoh's daughter agrees. And so not only does um, Moses' mom get to help raise him at the beginning of his life, but she gets to nurse him and get paid for it. So God really honors the faith of this woman. I think that's something we often overlook just because it's a really small detail. But it's just really sweet to see that God honors the faith of every single person in this story. It's also neat, too, in this story is that when Pharaoh's daughter names him, um, he, she names him Moses, which means to draw out. And it's just, it's like such a, fore, a foreshadow of like, mm-hmm. here's the man that's going to grow up in Pharaoh's house underneath his nose. And his name is Moses to draw out. And God's going to use Moses to draw mm-hmm. the people of God out of Egypt. Yeah, and it's just like, it's such a sign for us to see. Um, it's incredible. So for a little bit about Moses' background, I just want to give this before we jump into the story. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptian and was powerful in speech and action. If you think about it, Egypt was the most powerful empire at this time. So they had tons of academic and scientific societies on the earth, but this was the most powerful. So it's reasonable for us to think that Moses was instructed in everything, geography, history, Mm -hmm. grammar, writing, literature, philosophy, music. And um, some some people even think that Moses could have been um, the one that was the heir to the throne of Egypt. 
Also, in addition to this, we see that Josephus, the famous Jewish historian, thinks that Moses helped lead armies against um, Ethiopian armies in battle. So we see that Moses's background was one of great uh, accomplishment. He was a prince of Egypt. He was very well-versed in the things of society. He was smart. He was intelligent. And we also know that because Moses still had this upbringing of his mother, that he did have a good knowledge of his Hebrew upbringing as well. So that's kind of a little bit of his background. So we jump into the rest of the story in Exodus 2, and we see that Moses is 40 years old and knowing that he prematurely tried to save the people of Israel. And in Exodus 2.11, it says, One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. He looked this way and that way. And seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely this thing is known. So when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. I think this was really important for us to look at because Moses, we see here, tries to really prematurely save the people of Israel. If you think about it, after 400 years or so, Moses probably thinking about, oh, I might be the guy after knowing of this prophecy in Genesis 15. If you think about it, if Moses ever sat down and decided to deliver the people of Israel in his own way, I'm sure he wouldn't have chosen 10 crazy plagues, a staff, and his brother Aaron. I'm sure he would have chosen something in his own strength and his own might, just as we see in this chapter. In his own eyes, Moses was in the perfect place to deliver his people. If you think about it, Moses had the best mental training, the best physical training that any empire had to offer, and he had the heart to do what was right. But what he didn't realize yet was that he could not do it in his own strength. He himself could not by any means orchestrate the freedom of his people through his own hands. So we see that God has to show Moses through this scenario that he was nowhere near able to deliver the people in his own strength. Simply said, Moses was just too big. God had to show him that through 40, quote, seemingly meaningless, but really important years in the desert. Amen. You know, it, it's also cool about Moses is that when you think about Genesis 3, the, the serpent crusher, you would almost think maybe Moses is that character. Yeah. But this chapter shows us he's not, though God's mm-hmm. still going to use him to bring that about right. and to help further along the people of Israel so that serpent crusher will come. Mm-hmm. Um, but the way Exodus 2 ends, I want to make sure we clarify this on Exodus 2, really there's 23 through 25. We see this moment right here where it talks about, and even chapter 1 some, um, in chapter 3 you see it also, is that the people of God are crying out, right? They've been crying out and groaning before the Lord. It says, during those many days the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out. And their cry for rescue came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac. And when I think what we see here is we see several significant things is that the people, it's the first time in the Bible you see the people of God really crying. Other times you've seen individuals, but you see the people. And it's an amazing thing that when the people of God cried together, God heard, right? It talks about this, how God heard and God saw and God even knew. Mm-hmm. Psalms thirty-four fifteen says, The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. And this passage should encourage us that when we cry out to God, especially as a congregation, as a people of God, mm-hmm. that God is going to hear, he's going to see, and he knows, and he's going to come. 
And then when God does that, he plans to act. And he sets mm-hmm. this this motion, everything in motion, and begins to act in such a way where he displays his power. What this also shows us is that God remembered, like he said in the scripture, his covenant to Abraham. He declares himself to be a God that does not break his promises and that his promises are unbreakable to him. And so we turn to Exodus 3 and 4, and this is really where God meets Moses. And like Becca said, last we saw Moses, he fled because he tried to, he killed the, killed the Egyptian, and Pharaoh hears about it, and he goes after him, and so he flees, and he runs away. And like Becca said, he was just too big. He, he himself was too big. So God brings him out into the wilderness for 40 years. And it's in this place where God draws him and God changes him, but also in this place is where he meets God. And I want to read Exodus 3, 1 through 6. It says, He led his flock to the west side of the wilderness to the, and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. And he looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see the great sight, why the bush is not burned. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at him. This is such a powerful moment in Moses' life because what this represents, it represents God drawing Moses. One of the really powerful things that I was, as I was preparing and reading this, is that in Jewish culture, when you use someone's name two times in a row, what it means is it's actually a, a form of endearment or a form of, of friendship. And so what God is doing when he calls Moses and says, Moses, Moses, is he's saying, my friend, Moses. And he's saying, I want to be a friend to you. I want to be, I want to be endeared to you. I want you to know that I love you, that I care for you. And Moses, I'm calling you right now. And when, even when you think about that, you see that phrase over and over again in the Bible, Samuel, Samuel. And even Saul, when he says, Saul, Saul, why, have you, why are you persecuting me? Jesus responds, like, how amazing is that? Mm-hmm. Saul, I love you. Saul, I love you. Saul, you're my friend. Why are you persecuting me? Even when he was his enemy. And so he's really, God is showing himself to Moses in a way to say, I love you. I want you to know me. And, and so Moses encounters this burning bush. And he turns aside. And in this, God tells Moses what he wants to do. He reveals his plan to him. And really in verses 7 through 10, God shows that he tells Moses, I have seen the affliction of my people. I have heard their cry, just like we talked about. I know what their taskmasters are doing to them. I know they're suffering. And I have come down to deliver them. Mm-hmm. I am the one who's going to deliver them. And I'm going to bring them to the land of promise that I made a promise to Abraham. I'm going to destroy the Egyptians' oppression over them. And he says, but I'm I'm going to use you to do it. And and again, you just see God and he makes the same kind of statement where it's just like God has seen, God has heard, and God knows about their suffering. And so it moves God to action. And the whole point of this really is that God is going to pull these people out, the Israelites out to the promised land so that he can have for himself a people that will worship him and be a witness unto him. Mm-hmm. And this is exactly what it is even for our own lives today, is that God pulls us out of the world with, through the gospel that we may be worshipers of him and love him and adore him, but also to be as witnesses of redemption in the earth today. Mm-hmm. And that's what he wanted to do with the Israelites. And even this passage, you also see a little bit about God's plan. He reveals it to Moses that his plan is to use you, Moses, which is so amazing 
amazing that he, even though Moses, we had seen him, was already messed up. His pro, his self esteem, I bet, is just destroyed, shattered. He thought he was the guy, and his self esteem is completely down. And so that's actually what we see in the next few chapters, is Exodus three through four. Really, we see Moses' self esteem is low, and this is what happens: is Moses gives four excuses for not listening or obeying God's missions or giving these, and we see this. The way he does it, he says, but and if, different times. And this section shows how God, no matter what what the answer um, that Moses may give, he always says, I am sufficient. And he basically shows, Moses, you're an insufficient, and your self-esteem is low because of what you did in the past, and you failed, but I'm great. And so Amen. this is the first few things you see. In Exodus 3.11, Moses makes this statement to, to God when God calls him. He says, who am I? Right? He, he starts off with a thought like, well, you don't understand. I'm nothing. I'm, I'm a nobody. You know what I did? I failed and all these different things. And God responds to him in such a way. He says, but I will be with you. I will be with you. And so to combat that, that thought of who am I? It doesn't matter who you are. God is with you is what he's saying. doesn't matter who you are. I'm with you today. Mm-hmm. And then in, in Exodus 3, uh, 13, Moses makes another second argument. He says, what will I say? Right? He's confused. Okay, well, uh, what, what will I say? And people say that all the time. And God responds to him every time. Is always, every time that God responds to him, it's God revealing more about himself to Moses. And his response this time is God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, and he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And this is such a powerful moment because even in this verse, that statement, I am, we always say the great I am. What does that mean? Really what God was saying when he said, I am, he's saying, I am whatever I, ne- I am. Whatever I want to be, I am. I am bigger. I am, I am the God of all impossibilities. I can do anything. I am whatever I want to be. And I am great and mighty. And so, and then he also says to them, in verse 17, I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Prezerites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land of flowing milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice, and you, the elders of Israel, shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him. And so he's saying, Moses said, what will I say? You'll say this. You'll say what I said to you. Here's your message. And so it's like God is eliminating these excuses that Moses presents before him. The third argument or excuse you see Moses say, he says, but he basically says, but behold, they will not believe me, right? And he's, and he's basically saying like, what authority do I have? They denied me. When I tried to save them last time, they said, he's not our, you're not ruler over us. Mm-hmm. And this is what's also amazing about this is God's response is God told him what is in your right hand. And he said a staff and he told him to throw it on the ground. He throws his staff on the ground. And when he does, it turns into a serpent. And it says Moses ran from it, right? Like wouldn't everybody run from a serpent? But it said, the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. And so he did. And he caught it and he became, and it became a staff in his hand again. And what's significant about that is that Egypt was filled with serpents. Pharaoh's very head garments had a serpent on the top of it. And what what he is saying is, you are going in my authority, where you will be able to possess anything. Whatever I tell you to do, you have the power over it. Whatever I tell you, I am the authority. So they may ask, nobody will believe me. I have no authority. I'm going with you, and I'm the one with authority. And then the fourth argument that he really says to him is in uh, chapter 4, verse 10. But Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent. And he goes to the last thing where it's like, here's my last excuse. I'm not good at speaking. And God really just says to him, Who has made the mouth? Who, who makes him mute? Or who is deaf or seeing and blind? Who does all that? And he said, It is I, the Lord. 
And he says, now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. And God is just confirming to Moses, look, regardless of your mouth, I am the one that has made all the, uh, you, and I've made everyone, and I can whatever I want to happen will happen. And this was Moses' big problem, and his four excuses that he had, if I would say, these are the big excuses, is that Moses' problem is that he was thinking too much about himself. If you notice that every one of the excuses, the word I, 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 or me is involved. Mm-hmm. And what God was saying to him is, look, it's not about you. It's yeah. about I am, the I am, me. It is about me. And we should seek to glorify God with our abilities as well as our disabilities. And Moses did not understand that. Mm -hmm. And so this should bring a lot of comfort to our hearts that, look, when God calls you to something and you feel insignificant or not able and you throw every excuse you have at God, Mm -hmm. guess who is sending you? The I am. And Moses was able to go with that. Even then, Moses still tried to convince, okay, I have no more excuses, but can you send somebody else to do it? And the scriptures say that God gets angry with him, but yet God is graceful with him and doesn't kill him and says, I'll give you your brother. And Moses, and, and they journey off and they begin to go back. And Becca's going to pick up in Exodus 5. So we see that Moses and Aaron go on this journey and they're, they're going into what God has called them to. And after Moses and Aaron came to Pharaoh to plead on behalf of the Israelites, the first time we see that Pharaoh makes the slaves work harder by making them do the same work of building the same bricks, but now he's not going to provide straw anymore. So here we see that things look worse. Moses is upset. So he tells God in Exodus 5:23, for since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people and you have not delivered your people at all. We know that this is like a a little bit of a testing for Moses, but we know that God comes back in Exodus 6 and promises that deliverance once again and speaks to Moses. And we know that God is going to deliver in his time. It's incredible too in Exodus 6. And we don't, we don't have time to read everything, but I've Please go back and read it if you haven't read it, but just read this. But this is what God declares. This is the most encouraging passage. I love the story of Exodus just because it's Mm -hmm. like God on display. God declares and reaffirms himself and his word in this passage of Exodus 6, 2 through 9. It says, I am the Lord. I also establish my covenant. I have heard the groaning of my people. I have remembered my covenant. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you. I will redeem you. I will take you to be my people. I will be your God. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give you, and I will give it to you for a possession. And what God is doing here is saying, I, 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 the I am is going to do it. Mm-hmm. And what a picture for us today. Yeah. Oh, what do we do in our lives? But cry out to the I am to do everything in our lives. He is the one who's going to come and save them. Amen. So good. And so how does he save them? In Exodus 7 through 11, we see that God decides to draw his people out of Egypt by using a series of 10 plagues. And honestly, guys, in in Exodus 9, 15, we see what God has planned through all of these plagues, because honestly, we all know that God could have simply brought out of his people in one fell swoop, in one plague, and wiped out all of Egypt if he wanted to but he didn't. And here's why. In Exodus 9, 15 through 16, it says, For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you out off the earth. But I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So we see through these 10 plagues that God has a plan 
to show his power and that his name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And we know that Egypt was the most important empire of this time. They were super powerful and they didn't follow God. They had tons of other gods. And so God comes in and says, there is no other God like me. All these other gods are false. I'm going to show you how powerful and how mighty I am. And the great thing is that through all of these 10 plagues, something really important to notice the water, the frogs, the dust, the swarms of flies, the death of the cattle and the livestock, the boils, the hail, the locusts, the darkness, and the firstborn. All of those reflect God literally trumping an enemy and a God of Egypt. So we see that there was a God of the Nile. God trumps it when he turns the water into blood. All of these were gods of Egypt, and God just comes in and completely shows them, you're false, you can't do anything against me, I'm going to sucker punch you in the face, I am the real God, and I'm going to take you down. And so he does that through each of these plagues. And I wish we could go into all of them, we just don't have the time to it. If you want to look into it more of yourself, please do. And what's amazing about that also is that this is the picture of what Jesus has done to the principalities and powers that once ruled and ruled over us, right? The Bible says mm-hmm. we were in bondage and slavery, and this is what Exodus is. It is the picture of our, our us being freed also in the New Testament. But what's so amazing about it, like what Becca is saying, is that each one of these represented that, those different gods. And so God was making open war and showing them, just like yeah. Jesus did in Colossians 2. He took the principalities of powers and made them an open show, a spectacle, an embarrassment to show them, spoil them, and basically just said, look how pathetic they are. And it's just like Jesus on the cross. Colossians talks about how he made principalities and powers look foolish, a spectacle. He spoiled them. He destroyed them on the work on the cross. And that's exactly what this picture represents for us, is that God has done this, right? And and just like in Egypt, that's what he did with these gods. That's what he's doing. That's what he did on the cross through Jesus Christ. And so Becca's going to talk about Exodus 12, and this is a a portion of Scripture she's very passionate about, and so I'm just going to let her take over. So the final chapter of our reading last week was the Passover, and this is probably my favorite chapter in the whole first five books of the Bible and the Torah. Um, So I pray that God helps me just explain it as it's in my heart. But as we see, um, this is the final plague. So every single plague that we've seen up until this point is challenged to God. And in this one, God challenges Pharaoh because Pharaoh was essentially like a God to the Egyptians. And so he challenges him by taking the life of his very own son. And so he brings up the death of the firstborn in the last plague. And honestly, what I want us to see is up until this point, the Israelites essentially watched Egypt get scathed by God's judgment from Goshen. But this plague, this plague exposes the sinful Mm -hmm. nature of all men. So it shows them that they were also in desperate need of salvation from Yahweh. So everything up to this point, it was just done on the Egyptians. But now God brings it to this place of, we're all in desperate sin. We Everybody needs salvation from Yahweh. And, and I just want to point out in Romans 5, 12, it says that death spread to all men because all sinned. So here we see that God's people and the Egyptians, everybody needs atonement. And that atonement we see in the Passover was provided by a lamb. In Exodus 12, 1 through 6, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can make your account for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, male a year old. 
You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. So we see that the lamb had to be a year old, and the lamb had to be perfect. It had to be pure, spotless, and blameless to act as a substitute almost for men's sins. So although all of those details are important, the most important part that we see here is the killing of the lamb. Because we know that when God saw that its blood was on the doorpost, he would acknowledge the blood and pass over the house and the firstborn of that house would be saved. So God tells them, I want you to take this lamb and I want you to put the blood on the doorpost. And if it's there, I'm going to simply pass over it. But if it's not, I am going to come in and I'm going to kill that firstborn. So what God required was the offering of the lamb. He always has required that. We see this as far back as Cain. We see it as far back as Abel. And we see it in Abraham's story with Isaac. And throughout Israel's history, we will continue to see this theme, that God always requires the offering of a lamb, that blood offering. The beautiful thing that we see about this, the most beautiful, is that in salvation, this is good, God always gives what God demands. I'm going to say that again. The beautiful thing that we see through all of this is that in salvation, God gives what God demands. There is no way that we could ever have brought forth what God required for our atonement. If I sin, there is no way that I can actually bring something to God to atone for the sin that I've committed against him. Every single time we see salvation come onto the scene, God has given us what God demands. Again and again, throughout the story of redemption, we see that God steps onto the scene God saves his people for what they have done. Y'all, what an amazing, oh, what an amazing God. It's just so amazing. And this is the consistent message that the Bible tells us is that any time that we need to meet God, we must come on the basis of the lamb that he has provided. And Mm -hmm. we know today this is Jesus. Yeah, Jesus Christ is that spotless lamb. So as we look forward into the New Testament, which we see such shadows and types of this in this story, we become well aware that Jesus Christ is the only spotless human being, the very lamb of God, and he was slain on our behalf. There must be bloodshed or there will be no remission of sins, it talks about in Hebrews. And again, in 1 Corinthians, another scripture says that Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. We see that Jesus is the ultimate Passover lamb. Amen. For Jesus to be that Passover lamb, there were a few things that had to correspond to what we see here in Exodus 12. Jesus had to be spotless, which we know he was. He was born of a virgin, which is very important to our doctrine, which means his nature was free from corruption. Mm -hmm. Then we're told in another scripture that he never committed a sin in 1 Peter 2. So he had to be spotless, which he was, just like the lamb that we see here in Exodus 12. He also had to be slain at the appropriate time at the festival of the Passover. We know that in Exodus 12 that God commands them to slay the lamb at an appropriate time. And we see that in the New Testament, Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem the same day that the Passover lambs were driven into the city. And it was hundreds and thousands of them. We see that when Jesus celebrated the Last Supper with his disciples, they were celebrating the Passover in Matthew 26. His disciples didn't even understand it at the time. But when Jesus was saying, this is my body, this is my blood, what he really meant when he was saying this was, this Passover is all about me. I am the sacrificial lamb. Then we see that Christ was crucified in the afternoon on the eve of the Passover. Commentator Philip Graham Ryken said this, 
At twilight, lambs would be sacrificed by every household according to the law of Moses. All over the city, fathers were getting ready to make the offering, gathering their families together and saying, God has provided a lamb for us. Over at the temple, the high priest was also preparing a lamb to present as an atonement for Israel's sins. Then there was Jesus hanging on the cross with the sacrificial blood flowing from his hands inside. He was the lamb of God taking away the sins of the world. It's awesome. Only the pure, spotless sacrifice of Jesus could be the propitiation, as we call it, the atonement, the covering for our sins. Just as that doorpost had blood between God and the sinner, Jesus put his blood between us and God. We know that hundreds of thousands of lambs were brought every year through Jerusalem to atone for the people's sins. But not even that could take away the sins of the people, y'all. In Hebrews 10, my favorite book of the Bible, Hebrews, it talks about it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins, that it's only a type to the fulfillment of the true lamb of God, Jesus Christ. If you think about it, if you were here in this first Passover, would you have put the blood on your doorpost? Absolutely you would have to be free from the judgment that was going to come against your house. And just in that same way as we would have put that blood over our doorpost, we are called to put our faith in Christ and allow for his substitutionary work on the cross and the pouring out of his blood to wash all our sins away. Amen. That really is an incredible passage. And I pray that you would pray and just consider the Passover and just think about Christ mm. this week. And it really is an amazing thing. We are so blessed. Yeah. And and this is the end of the episode today. And next week, we're going to talk about Exodus 13 and moving into all the way to 27. So we're going to look at them completely coming out of Egypt mm-hmm. and God delivering them through the Red Sea and then God making the covenant with them and the tabernacle and all these things. But just to confirm that each week, guys, I just encourage you to keep reading along. I know that the reading is going to get a little bit more factual in some ways where maybe you'll get to things with the tabernacle and they'll be challenging, but it really will bless you. I promise Mm -hmm. you that the word of God, all of it is relevant to our lives. And if we really ask the Holy Spirit to show us the things of God in the scripture and just Jesus, just as we talked about in Luke 24 when we started, we will. And so just want to thank you for joining us this week. It's an amazing topic that we got to go through this week, and I hope it blessed you all. We love you very much, and we'll see you guys soon. Amen. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for listening. For more FNT Bible Talk, be sure to subscribe and visit fntchurch.org for more information.